save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. With all that's been written about the bizarre circumstances surrounding her death, Gloria Ramirez's life is often overlooked. We have to look back before she became national news, before she became a punchline on late-night talk shows, or the inspiration for sci-fi TV shows. Gloria was born on January 11, 1963, in Riverside, California. She was friendly and a good talker, a nice lady with a quick smile. People liked her. She was one of three children in a tight-knit Mexican-American family. Her father was an auto mechanic, and her mother was a homemaker. When she was a teenager, Gloria dropped out of high school. After that, she worked a number of low-wage jobs over the years before meeting the father of her children, a maintenance worker named Angel Arseniega. In 1978, Angel saw her swimming at a riverside park, and the couple fell in love. They remained together for the next eight years, but the relationship ended in 1986, and Gloria moved into a converted garage apartment at her parents' house with her two kids, 15-year-old Evelyn and 12-year-old Angel Buddy Jr. Gloria would eventually become involved with another man named Johnny Estrada, and the couple would become engaged. But in December 1994, Gloria began feeling ill and started losing weight fast. A month later, she would be diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. It was a terminal diagnosis, which is even more tragic considering that in 1991, Gloria had been treated at Riverside General Hospital after being raped. It was then she'd been given a pap smear that came back abnormal. Her family's attorneys claimed that Gloria was never informed of the abnormality, although medical records state otherwise. If Gloria Ramirez had begun receiving treatment back then, there's a good chance she may have lived longer, and the truly bizarre circumstances surrounding her death may never have occurred. On February 19, 1994, Gloria Ramirez was rushed to the Riverside General Emergency Room suffering respiratory problems. While she was there, more than a dozen hospital workers allegedly inhaled toxic fumes emitted from her body that caused them to fall ill. This is the story of the toxic lady. I'm Nate Hale, and I smell a mystery brewing. And this is The Conspirators. At 8.15 p.m. on February 19, 1994, paramedics rushed through the emergency room doors at Riverside General Hospital and wheeled Gloria Ramirez into a trauma bay. Gloria had begun vomiting earlier that evening and was now having difficulty breathing. The paramedics would later testify that they had inserted an intravenous line into Gloria's arm during the ambulance ride over, spilling some of her blood in the process. When they wheeled Gloria into the ER... 
She was confused but still alert and talking. Emergency room doctors rushed to administer drugs to calm Gloria down and smooth out her irregular heartbeat. When Nurse Susan Kane started a second IV line in Gloria, that's when things got strange. Standard procedure when administering an IV involves squeezing some fluid out of the IV tubing to clear it of air bubbles that could kill the patient. Kane inserted the IV needle into Gloria's arm, then used a separate syringe to draw a sample of blood near the IV site. That's when she said she began to smell something odd. Who popped the ammonia? Kane asked out loud. She noticed that the blood she drew appeared to contain pale crystals growing inside the syringe. Kane sniffed the air and passed the syringe to Dr. Julie Gorchinsky, an ER resident, then leaned in closer to smell the IV site. Immediately after, Kane stood up abruptly, then collapsed. Umberto Ochoa, the doctor in charge of the ER that day, lunged forward to catch her and ease her unconscious body to the floor. Dr. Gorchinsky also smelled the syringe and immediately began feeling queasy. She turned to leave the trauma bay, but then she passed out as well. She began having difficulty breathing, and her body began shaking uncontrollably. Soon after, a respiratory therapist named Maureen Welch also got a whiff of the syringe that caused her to pass out as well. She later reported a strange ammonia-like odor. Even after she regained consciousness, her arms and legs continued to jerk uncontrollably. After inhaling the fumes, another nurse named Sally Balderas began vomiting and complaining of a strange burning sensation. Doctors placed her on a gurney and wheeled her out into the parking lot. By now, the entire ER at Riverside General was in chaos. Several other people began complaining about a strange ammonia-like smell that made them feel ill. Others who were there that day described the smell as garlicky, and a few noted a strange oily sheen on Gloria Ramirez's skin. Dr. Ochoa ordered the ER be evacuated, and someone dialed 911. Patients were brought out into the parking lot while a skeleton crew remained behind trying to save Gloria Ramirez's life. Soon, the Riverside Fire Department arrived on the scene and ordered the remaining medical personnel to get out. At 8.50 p.m., Dr. Ochoa pronounced Gloria Ramirez dead. Although medical records remain unclear whether she died before or after the hospital evacuation. At least 15 people reported that they had been sickened by the strange odor. Most of them complained of symptoms that included dizziness, nausea, headaches, and difficulty breathing. Six ER workers showing the most severe symptoms were admitted to a nearby hospital. The worst of them all was Dr. Gorchinsky, who would end up in an intensive care unit for two weeks, breathing with the aid of a respirator. She would continue to suffer the after-effects of whatever happened that day in the ER for the remainder of her life. She spent another three months in a wheelchair, and suffered constant bouts of apnea, hepatitis, pancreatitis, and necrosis of the bone marrow that would cripple her legs and require her to have three surgeries. Of all the ER staff who came into contact with Gloria Ramirez's body, only Dr. Ochoa claimed to have had no symptoms. The story of the toxic lady quickly became national news. It even inspired an episode of The X-Files. Gloria's kids would later claim that they were taunted by bullies at school who told them their mother was a monster. Health officials immediately decided they weren't taking any chances with Gloria Ramirez's body. Six days after Gloria's death, state health officials decided they weren't messing around when it came to precautions surrounding the autopsy. 
The Riverside County Coroner's Office became set up like a scene out of a science fiction movie. A special chamber was constructed so the four men who handled the body would be completely sealed off from the outside world. All four of them wore level A protective suits, the sort of gear usually reserved for toxic spills. Oxygen was pumped into their suits through umbilical cords, and just in case the cords failed, each suit came equipped with their own temporary oxygen supply. Outside the chamber, four members of Riverside County's hazardous materials team watched the autopsy on a video monitor. They too were dressed in protective suits, just in case they needed to rush in. Outside, three fire trucks stood nearby as well. More than 50 reporters waited eagerly by to hear the results. At one point, one of the reporters shouted to the chief deputy coroner, Dan Cupido, what everyone was so afraid of. The man responded, the unknown. Up until this point, everything was going according to a carefully constructed plan that had been set forth by two of Cal OSHA's senior officials, Charles Cox, a Cal OSHA district manager, and Tom Krancevich, a seasoned Cal OSHA investigator. It was their job to ensure everyone's safety during the autopsy, and by law the procedure couldn't begin until they gave their okay. But then, shortly before the autopsy was expected to begin, Riverside County Coroner Scotty Hill showed up and ordered the Cal OSHA men to leave. Cox and Krancevich protested, but Hill insisted. Things grew heated and Coroner Hill ordered the police to escort the two men off the property. Charles Cox was a 12-year veteran of Cal OSHA, and he knew something was very wrong with what was going on. California law clearly stated Cal OSHA were to be the ones in charge of the autopsy, but suddenly he found himself being forced out for suspicious reasons. For a month following the aborted autopsy, Gloria Ramirez's relatives phoned the coroner's office asking when her body would be released. The family wanted an independent autopsy to be conducted, then be allowed to bury Gloria. County officials responded by suing the family. The county wanted a judge to order the family to follow the same high security procedures that had been set up for the first autopsy. But during the court procedures, it was revealed that the coroner's office had performed a second secret autopsy during which they hadn't bothered to follow the added protective measures they demanded of the family. Coroner's officials were ordered to provide an explanation. They didn't have one, only stating that they were simply finishing the job they hadn't gotten around to before. Charles Cox from Cal OSHA came to believe they had an ulterior motive, and that they were testing to make sure whatever chemicals Ramirez's body had been exposed to dissipated over time. The L.A. coroner's office also never offered a good explanation why they decided to perform the autopsy in two sessions. Standard procedure for any autopsy is to do it all at once. Superior Court Judge Victor Maselli criticized the coroner's office over their behavior, especially with their secret second autopsy, where they never informed the Ramirez family so that their pathologist could attend. The judge said the whole affair looked like they were trying to cover something up. He ordered the coroner Scotty Hill to answer questions under oath. Just hours before he would have been forced to take the witness stand, the county abruptly withdrew its suit. Things look even more suspicious when you consider just how much evidence surrounding Gloria's death mysteriously disappeared or was irrevocably compromised. The blood taken from Ramirez at the hospital before she died vanished. The county claimed they sent the IV bag Ramirez had been given in the emergency room to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for testing. But the Riverside deputy coroner was later forced to admit they never followed up with the FDA on their findings. Nor would the FDA ever publicly admit whether they received or tested the bag at all. 
All the remaining evidence, such as the IV tubing, towels, bedding, and clothing worn by ER staff, were packed into barrels and sent to a desert waste facility, where they were allowed to bake in the California sun for months. Four months after Ramirez died, the county's risk manager attempted to dig up the evidence, only to discover that none of it had been tagged and that it had all been spoiled. With no proper chain of custody, it would have been impossible to enter any of it into evidence in a court of law. Gloria Ramirez's body was finally released to the family a full two months after she died. By this point, the body was so badly decomposed that it made it practically impossible for the pathologist the family hired to do a proper investigation. Despite the county's promise of cooperation, the body had been poorly preserved, and all of Ramirez's internal organs had been removed, then tossed together into a single plastic bag. Well, most of them, that is. Strangely, Gloria Ramirez's heart was missing. Coroner Hill was never able to explain what happened to it either. Hill ultimately ruled that Gloria Ramirez died from a combination of heart and kidney failure stemming from her cervical cancer. But the independent pathologist the family hired was unable to determine their own cause of death because of the advanced state of decomposition, the fact that the heart was missing, and the other organs were cross-contaminated with fecal matter. Ramirez's family was convinced there was a cover-up going on, and that officials knew more about what had happened in the ER that day than they were letting on. Two weeks after Ramirez died, the two officials from Cal OSHA, Cox and Kranchevich, who had been kicked out of the first autopsy, were now unceremoniously removed from the case. Cox was told he wasn't sensitive to the highly political nature of the case. Kranchevich, who had been one of Cal OSHA's most aggressive enforcement officers, was told he was being removed because of his disruptive behavior with Coroner Hill and Riverside general officials. The Ramirez case was then transferred to Cal OSHA's regional office in Anaheim, although the new investigator wouldn't actually visit the hospital until six weeks later. This was despite some Cal OSHA officials believing the fumes may have been the result of a toxic agent or poisonous gas. Shortly before Cox and Kranchevich were yanked off the case, the head of the county's health services agency sent an email to Riverside General Staff instructing them to keep their mouths shut about the Ramirez incident because a sensitive agreement they had with Cal OSHA could be disrupted if it got out to the press. Cal OSHA's Southern California chief was later interviewed and denied any such agreement had been made. An attorney representing the county health agency, though, would later confirm that an agreement actually had been made to shift supervision of the hospital probe from one department to another, after which Charles Cox was subsequently demoted. At the time all this media coverage of the case was going on, there was also an election occurring in which Coroner Hill was attempting to hang on to his job. His opponent was Deputy Coroner Rick Diaz. Hill had been with the coroner's office for 20 years, and had spent 18 years in the mortuary business before that. Throughout this stage of the campaign, his face was on TV and in the papers constantly as reporters bombarded him with questions about the Gloria Ramirez investigation. But although for a while the extra publicity was a major boon to his political campaign, something happened a month into the investigation that threatened to end his career. The high-ranking coroner's deputy in charge of the Ramirez case, Stephanie Albright, committed suicide. The woman shot herself while speaking on the phone to her estranged husband. People familiar with Albright claimed she had been feeling pressure from the breakup of her relationship, as well as political pressure surrounding the Ramirez case. Things were looking bad for Coroner Hill. 
With his chief deputy now dead and all the political pressure now centered on him, Coroner Hill released his findings in Gloria Ramirez's death a few weeks before the June election. His report stated that Gloria Ramirez died of heart and kidney failure related to her cervical cancer. He then speculated to the press that the mysterious fumes that sickened the ER workers were simply the smell of death. This, of course, didn't satisfy anyone. Reports came out of the State Department of Health that the entire incident had simply been a case of mass hysteria in the emergency room. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. There is a form of mass hysteria known as a sociogenic illness in which a large group of people all claim to come down with a perceived illness. It seems strange to consider, but there actually have been such cases reported around the world. During the 1990 Gulf War, an Iraqi Scud missile struck Israel, after which nearly half the nearby citizens reported symptoms of a gas attack, even though no chemical warheads had been used. In Belgium in 1999, hundreds of schoolchildren fell ill after drinking Coca-Cola. But nothing was found wrong with the beverage, nor did anything show up in blood tests of the children. In most cases where a sociogenic illness is reported, a combination of stress and fear has been shown to spread the feelings of sickness throughout the group. Of course, that's all fine and dandy to say, but remember, we're not talking about a group of schoolchildren here. We're talking about a handful of doctors and nurses in a busy emergency room that dealt with gunshots and cut into people's bodies on a daily basis. To claim that this particular group could have fallen prey to a form of mass hysteria seems pretty far-fetched. Besides that, the report from the State Department of Health Services is also oddly sexist as well, since it made a special point of indicating that more women than men fell ill in the ER that day. The idea that the incident was just a case of mass hysteria just doesn't hold water for me. Not when you consider the specific symptoms these doctors and nurses reported. Remember, Dr. Julie Gorchinsky suffered some extremely debilitating symptoms that plagued her for years after. In fact, she would go on to file a $6 million lawsuit against the hospital over the incident. Although all the added news coverage had been good for Coroner Hill for a while leading up to the election, soon news about his careless handling of Ramirez's body and secret second autopsy caused reporters to turn on him. The negative publicity leading up to the June election led to a November runoff against Diaz. Just five days before the runoff, Hill released another report offering a theory drafted by the famed Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's Forensic Sciences Division. Their theory all stems from results of a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer analysis of samples taken from Ramirez, as well as the headspace the air between the sample and the lid of the container. The test showed a spike in one particular compound that wasn't among the drugs Ramirez had been given, a chemical named dimethyl sulfone. Dimethyl sulfone is one oxygen atom away from another chemical known as dimethyl sulfoxide, which is commonly called DMSO. DMSO is a gel that's sold commercially as a degreaser in hardware stores but is also sometimes used by athletes and cancer patients to rub on sore muscles. 
Livermore researchers theorize that Ramirez may have been rubbing DMSO on her skin to relieve her pain, which may also explain why some of the medical professionals claimed Ramirez's skin had an odd greasy appearance to it, as well as a garlicky odor. The Livermore scientists further theorized that after the paramedics gave Ramirez oxygen in the ambulance, an unusual series of chemical reactions occurred. The extra oxygen Ramirez was given in the ambulance ride to the hospital might have changed the DMSO into dimethylsulfone. This theory is worth considering because it's a fact that dimethylsulfone does crystallize at room temperature. Remember, one of the nurses claimed to have seen crystals growing in the syringe full of Ramirez's blood. On its own, dimethylsulfone wouldn't explain the symptoms experienced by people. But the doctors from Livermore Labs suggested that yet another chemical reaction occurred afterwards when electric shock treatments were administered to stabilize Ramirez's heart. It would have been at this point that the dimethylsulfone would have changed into another compound called dimethylsulfate. And dimethylsulfite just happens to be a powerful and deadly nerve gas. Once that was released into the air, all bets were off and everyone was in serious danger. According to a 1987 Defense Department document about the gas, a 10-minute exposure in only a cubic meter of air was enough to kill a human being. Coroner Hill heavily pushed this theory as the correct one, and the press remained largely uncritical of it. Even today, if you look up Gloria Ramirez online, you'll find dozens of articles stating the DMSO theory as a solution to everything. On the surface, even I have to admit, it sounds pretty good. But I'm not a scientist, nor are most of the reporters who jumped on the DMSO bandwagon. It turns out there are some pretty big problems with this theory as well. For one, Gloria Ramirez's family swore she never used DMSO in the days prior to her death. Although keep in mind they also filed a large lawsuit against Riverside General, which would have been made much more difficult if they admitted she had used the gel. Also, in a 1995 article in Discover Magazine, Livermore scientists said that their DMSO theory was just that, a theory, and not a definitive explanation. They were actually very critical of Coroner Hill for releasing what was meant to be a confidential report on their findings. Professor Stanley Jacob, a professor of surgery at Oregon Health Sciences University and one of the world's leading DMSO experts, strongly disputes the findings of the Lawrence Livermore study. He actually described the Livermore report as goofy and didn't think there was any way Lawrence Livermore could get their findings published. To date, no one has ever been able to reproduce the series of chemical reactions they claimed occurred in the ER that day under laboratory conditions. Several people in the medical community also scoffed at the mass hysteria theory. Jane Orient, the executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, referring to the story about Dr. Korczynski, told a reporter that she had never heard of a case of mass hysteria causing someone to experience respiratory failure before. Adding that it sounded like the people in the emergency room had been exposed to some volatile chemical to her. Okay, so if it wasn't mass hysteria, and it wasn't dimethyl sulfate, then what could it have been? Well, there's one other theory that's been put forth that fans of the show Breaking Bad might be interested in. You see, back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Riverside County was a hotspot for the production and distribution of methamphetamines. Just in that area alone, after 1988, more than 1,000 clandestine meth labs were shut down by state and local law enforcement officials. Estimates claim that at least twice that many may have gone on undetected. In fact, the Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement 
once dubbed Riverside County the methamphetamine capital of the world. In 1995, three people were arrested for running a meth lab out of a daycare center. In 1996, police found a meth lab in the home of a middle school teacher. And no, his name wasn't Walter White. Three children once died in Riverside County when their meth-cooking mother accidentally blew up their mobile home. There are some people who have investigated the case who suspect Riverside General Hospital to have been involved in the production of meth. Now, of course, the idea of someone running a meth lab out of a public hospital sounds crazy. But believe it or not, it's not entirely unheard of either. In 1990, a public medical facility in Denver, where they did testing for TB and other communicable diseases, was raided when it was discovered that one of their employees was cooking meth inside the lab at night. The operation was discovered after a supervisor noticed the strong fumes in the building. When you think about it, a hospital might actually be a perfect place to cook meth. In a hospital, there are lots of locked doors, lots of beakers and other medical equipment, and access to chemicals without a lot of questions being asked. Because of law enforcement crackdowns, some meth cookers resorted to making the drug in stages at different locations to avoid detection. California and other states began cracking down on the ability for people to purchase many of the solvents and other chemicals needed to make methamphetamines. As a result, a lucrative black market in certain chemical precursors to meth rose up that could be combined to make the drug. Remember Charles Cox, the Cal OSHA manager who was thrown off Gloria Ramirez's case? Well, he believes that one of those chemical precursors, such as methylamine, was being produced at Riverside General. Cox theorized that some hospital workers were running a lucrative business on the side producing these meth precursors. He thinks that at first hospital officials were completely unaware this was going on. But once the investigation began and they realized what was happening right under their noses and the massive legal liability they'd be in for, they decided to cover everything up. Cox believed that the precursor chemicals were being packaged in IV bags that would later be smuggled out of the hospital. On the day Gloria Ramirez was brought into the ER, he thinks a mix-up occurred and one of the nurses got her hands on one of the bags filled with the meth precursor by mistake. This theory actually seems to fit in many ways. For starters, remember that in the ride over to the hospital, paramedics actually attached their own IV to Gloria Ramirez and spilled some of her blood inside the ambulance. Yet neither paramedic reported any unusual smells or anything else out of the ordinary. When Ramirez arrived in the ER and was about to be administered the new IV, the first thing Nurse Kane did was give the bag a few squeezes to remove any air bubbles. This could have released some of the initial fumes into the air. Although once meth is fully cooked, it's completely odorless. Some of the precursor chemicals, like methylamine, are known to give off a pungent ammonia or sewer-like odor. Besides that, those same fumes are also known to produce many of the same symptoms described by the ER staff. For example, some cases of exposure to meth fumes can cause severe respiratory issues that may require the patient to be intubated with a breathing tube. And that's precisely what they had to do to Dr. Gorchinsky after she collapsed in the Riverside ER. Also, after sniffing the syringe, she also had chemical burns around her nose and throat that were consistent with being exposed to some caustic chemicals. Another piece of evidence that points to the meth theory is that blood tests of Ramirez, Gorchinsky, and Nurse Balderas showed elevated levels of another unexpected chemical, cyanide. 
To date, no one has been able to explain where that particular chemical compound could have come from. Not even Lawrence Livermore's lab. But methylamine could explain it, though. You see, methylamine can metabolize in the body and convert into cyanide. Alexander Shulgin, a former University of California Berkeley professor of forensic toxicology, was approached by the now-defunct newspaper New Times LA and analyzed the formula for a gas found in the body bag that transported Ramirez's corpse and found it matched a couple of meth precursor compounds. He also added that if he was able to figure out so quickly what those chemical compounds were, there was no way state investigators could have missed them. According to reports, Ramirez's body was tested for meth and other illegal drugs, but results came back negative. Although independent toxicologists claim that a decomposing body produces chemicals that would have made meth detection difficult to impossible. Besides that, drug screenings of this nature would have been testing for finished meth, not any meth precursor. Of course, there's also another relatively simple reason meth may not have been detected in Ramirez's body. That is, if someone decided to swap her samples out with someone else's. Since no DNA testing was ever done on the samples that purportedly came from Ramirez, there's no way of knowing for certain if they were really hers or not. In the end, we're never going to know for certain what really happened to Gloria Ramirez. There's never been another incident quite like it reported before or after her death. Her family was finally allowed to bury her a full ten weeks after her death, in an unmarked grave in Olivewood Cemetery. Her friends and family had to hold an extended yard sale in order to pay for the funeral. Her remains were placed in the ground, minus her heart. As I mentioned, the most commonly held theory to this day is that Gloria Ramirez's body experienced a a one-in-a-million chance series of chemical reactions that all started with her using the pain-relieving gel known as DMSO. Other than that, there are still those who stick firmly to the belief that it was all simply a case of mass hysteria. But of all the plausible theories that gets put forth, the one that gets the least amount of press is the one about the meth lab being operated out of Riverside General. You can make up your own mind which theory you choose to believe. Perhaps it's none of these. Heck, in the X-Files episode inspired by Gloria Ramirez's story, the reason the fumes were released were because the victim was an alien-human hybrid. But with regards to the meth lab theory, there is one other detail I should add. Something that's not often reported is the fact that the night Ramirez died wasn't even the first time unusual odors were reported inside Riverside General Hospital. According to hospital and Cal OSHA records, sewer-like odors were reported regularly inside the hospital for several weeks before Ramirez's death, although no cause was ever found. In fact, about a month before the ER was evacuated, a cancer patient named Dennis Weiss was forced to flee his room after he and his wife were overcome with noxious fumes. The patient returned to his room only to be forced to leave again two days later when the fumes that built up inside became so strong it made him vomit. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I need to make a correction about something I said in my Christmas episode, and I also need to give an update as well. At one point I mentioned that the ancient celebrations that became Christmas were set around a time of the year when it was thought the veil between the living and the dead was at its thinnest. Well, a listener named Lily wrote in to say that historically the time of year when the veil between the dead and the living was believed to be at its thinnest was actually closer to the fall celebration of Samhain, which is actually what Halloween became based on. 
The ancient celebration known as Yule, which became the early basis for Christmas, was centered around the returning of the sun after the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. Those long, cold nights were perfect for telling scary ghost stories to pass the time. Thanks, Lily, for the clarification. If you ever have any additional information you think I missed or would like to add, please feel free to drop me a line at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com or find me on our Facebook page. As for the update, one of the stories I told in my Christmas episode was about a woman named Sharon Elliott, the famous hatbox baby, who was found abandoned on Christmas Eve 1931 in the Arizona desert. Well, I have some sad news to report that Sharon Elliott passed away at age 86. Although it turns out that the mystery of her biological parents has apparently been solved. Reporters from the Arizona Republic newspapers recently ran a fascinating 11-part article delving into the mystery. And they revealed through DNA testing that Sharon's birth parents were actually Frida Strackbein and Walter Roth. It appears the mother became pregnant with Sharon before she and her husband married, and they decided to give up the little girl to avoid a scandal. There's a lot more to the tale than that, and I highly recommend you look up the entire series from the Arizona Republic to get the whole fascinating story. I also want to offer my condolences to Sharon's family for their loss. In other business, I have a couple new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Heather and Stephen for helping keep the lights on. I wanted to remind you that if you're interested in helping support the Conspirators, patrons get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. The latest of which will have just come out a few days ago. It's the true story of a creepy stalker in the age of smartphones. Another way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again for all your support. I hope you'll join us again next time.